Yes, 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 dear listeners, it's me again, your old mucker, Andy Roberts. Welcome back once again to the Nasty Pasty Podcast, a show that revels in the heyday of the pre-certified videotape in Britain, when films from all over the world arrived on our shores to fulfil the ever-swelling home video market, bringing with it examples of extreme violence that would never have passed the censor. Well, for at least a couple of decades anyway. This period of bliss wasn't to last, however, as do-gooders and spoil-sports gathered in their masses and implored the government to save our children from the evil of the video nasties. All 154 named and shamed titles exited the stage, either successfully prosecuted for obscenity or just simply seized by the police anyway. This podcast is looking at the films outside of those 154 declared seizable by the DPP, and we wonder why other extreme or at least on-par horror films were not caught in the trawl. We're now on our 38th episode of such scourings, and like all of the others, I'll be again covering two films of similar themes and wondering why these weren't seized. So today's pair I've categorised as influential giallo films due to the effect that they had on both the director's future work as well as other films and genres. They are Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling and Sergio Martino's Torso, which is also known as The Bodies Bear Traces of Carnal Violence. Both Fulci and Martino had other films which were listed on the nasties lists, so it does seem only fitting to look at their other work. Both of these films are influential in their own way, so let's take a closer look at our first film this week, 1972's Don't Torture a Duckling. A strange maddened woman digs into the ground with her bare hands and uncovers what appears to be a child's skeleton. In the meantime, three young boys, Bruno, Michele and Tonino, hang around smoking and getting into various mischiefs, such as harassing a peeping Tom called Giuseppe. The mad-looking woman then seems to conduct a ceremony using the child's skeleton, 
forming a wax which she fashions into three dolls, plunging pins through all three of them, one for each of the boys. Michele returns home and is asked to bring orange juice to his upstairs neighbour, the licentious Patrizia, who lies naked on her chair and teases the young boy about his lack of sexual experience. Later that night, Bruno is pursued through the woods and attacked by an unknown assailant. Upon discovery of his disappearance, the police mount a search which proves fruitless. Reporters then arrive at the village, one of which is a chap called Martelli, who finds out that Bruno's family have received a phone call from the suspected killer, asking for a ransom of six million lira. Seemingly obtaining the money, Bruno's father makes the drop at the requested place, and the chief of police, Captain Modesti, captures the person who's collecting the ransom, revealed to be Giuseppe. He claims innocence, though leads the police to Bruno's body, claiming that he was already dead when he found him and that he simply tried, stupidly, to get a ransom. A hysteria boils over in the town, with angry villagers attempting to hurt Giuseppe while he's in custody, though Modesti eventually believes that he's innocent of the crime, especially when the following day, Tonino's body is found drowned by an old woman in the village. After further investigation, it appears the young boy's deaths have not been sexual in nature, but they do have the common theme of being knocked out before being killed. Martelli speaks to the church group's priest that the two boys belong to, called Don Alberto, who explains that things have got strange since Patrizia arrived in town, with Martelli noticing her liberal sense of dress. Later that night, Michele receives a phone call from an unknown caller, and is asked to leave the house during a storm. Seemingly followed, he hides from his pursuer, and once he's gone, makes his way to a cruciform statue, where he's then strangled to death by someone he seems to recognise. Martelli joins the search party for Michele, while the police chief interrogates Patrizia about her whereabouts the night before, forcing her to reveal that she used to have a drug addiction, and she occasionally gets cravings, which is why she was out driving. Michele's body is found and his funeral is attended by Mardetti, the townspeople, the madwoman, who's called Majara, and Don Alberto's mother, Aurelia, noted to be very cold and detached. Michele's mother suddenly goes into a frenzy and claims that the killer is present, scaring Majara away from the building. The police notice her leaving and reveal that she is known for being a witch and a practitioner of magic, and also for living with another magic user called Francesco, the man who was pursuing Michele during the storm. The police interrogate him, finding him to be unhelpful and evasive, though he does explain that during that fateful night he was out looking for Majara. On an anonymous tip from a woman, the police track down Majara's last location, finding both the infant skeleton and three little ceremonial piles. Sniffer dogs eventually sniff Majara out in the woods, and she sensationally claims that she did kill the boys. Going further, she explains that the boys unearthed the child's skeleton, which is actually her deceased child, and as revenge, she put a magic spell on them using her wax dolls. Another of the officers notes that he spotted her on the night of Michele's murder, but miles away from the scene, leading the men to deduce that she's merely delusional. Upon her release, the townspeople appear convinced of her guilt, and as a result, several men ambush Majara in a cemetery and brutally assault her using wooden planks and chains, leaving her for dead. Though she struggles and makes it to a main road, all the passers-by ignore her, leading to her dying on the side of the road. In the town, Patricia tries to talk to a little deaf-mute girl, Don Alberto's young sister and Aurelia's daughter, called Malvira. Maldetti informs Patricia of the girl's condition, just before noticing that her doll is missing its head. Later that day, a little boy called Mario wanders off alone and encounters Patricia, who has a flat tyre. 
Later, Mario's body is found in a stream by Don Alberto, making the police realise that the killer is indeed still among them. At the scene, Martelli finds a golden lighter, which he recognises as Patrizia's. Visiting her at her home, Martelli confronts her and is eventually asked about her whereabouts during Mario's murder by the police. She eventually reveals that she's been phoning for a hit of marijuana from her contacts and visiting Francesco overnight before returning to Martelli. They both notice in the paper that the head of a Donald Duck was present at the scene, the same as the doll that Patricia bought for Malvina. Martelli realises that the little girl must have seen the killer and has simply reenacted what she saw on her dolls, causing her to behead them. This is confirmed when the pair find additional heads around Don Alberto's house. Soon after, Aurelia and Malvina disappear, so Patricia and Martelli search for them in the mountains nearby. Don Alberto soon arrives, and after a struggle with his mother ending with her being injured, he seizes his sister and makes off with her. Aurelia reveals that her son is mad and will kill his sister if left alone. At a cliff edge, Don Alberto justifies what he will do in his head, claiming that he only killed the children to save them from themselves. After a struggle with both Martelli and Patricia, the priest is flung off the edge of a cliff, being pulverised as he hits the rocky wall, and finally slamming into the ground, dead. The boy wasn't molested this time, either. Make a statement to the press. We can put a stop to the rumours that the crimes were sexual. The only variations we've found between the two bodies was the contusion on the neck of the first victim. Yes, the killer stunned him before killing him. But remember that the boy was strangled. He could have been beaten to death. Instead, he was killed like the other one. In my opinion, this indicates a definite choice, the kind of manic repetition we find in schizophrenics. Brilliant. He's murdered two little children. The guy's obviously going to be a mental case, uh, to my way of thinking, Lieutenant. Of course. The killer is a maniac. But his mind works in a certain logical pattern which has a reasonable meaning for him. Were they unrelated victims? Perhaps their poor bodies can furnish some hint. Way before he became known as the godfather of gore, Fulci's filmography up until 1972 had mostly been a mix of jolly, westerns or adventure movies. Stuff like Lizard in a Woman's Skin, White Fang or The Brute and the Beast were Fulci's forte. Of course, Don't Torture a Duckling would also be a giallo picture, but one that would mark the beginnings of Fulci's ascension into brutal violence and more pronounced horror themes. Don't Torture a Duckling is both a very traditional and an unconventional giallo picture for many reasons. The setting of the film is distinctly at odds with what you'd expect. Most giallo pictures feature quite sleek cityscapes with a bustle and a clamour of a large metropolitan populace. Here, the action is set at a rather isolated small provincial village, with swathes of natural fields and mountains. There's also an excess of muted pale colours, making the normally rustic location seem quite clinical and cold, and certainly not welcoming. Which leads quite nicely to the next point, the characters. Most of the village people are immediately suspicious, not to the viewer, but to every other person. It's established relatively quickly that the small population of the village all ascribe to the devoutly religious doctrines of Catholicism. People go to church, they have their children go to confession religiously, and they play soccer in a church group, presided over by a priest. Any other denomination of faith or belief systems are rigorously opposed to, either directly or through ignorance of those who are different. 
This is shown in various examples, such as Martelli, an out-of-town journalist who is viewed as troublesome as the whole gaggle of press who've arrived to the small town to report on its grisly murders. Certainly, the police are genial enough, but no more than their duty requires. Similarly, the out-of-towner Patricia, though clearly attractive and eye-catching in more ways than one, is all but condemned to the annals of gossip and chatter, mostly of a scornful nature due to her liberal way of dressing, her provocative behaviour and mysterious drug-addled past. Giuseppe, the peeping Tom, is largely ignored and ostracised from his fellow man, condemned as simply a pervert, despite having clearly some sort of mental disability. The most ostracised of all, though, is the clearly bonkers Majara, who's not only a foreigner, a Romany of some kind, but one who symbolically spits in the face of the villagers' faiths by practising black magic, refusing to attend church, and hoarding her long-deceased child's bones. Well, if they're actually aware of that, of course. The children in the village certainly know about it, though they're also a bunch of interesting players in the story themselves. Rather uncommonly for a giallo, the victims in this film are almost exclusively children, specifically young boys. The three main ones who are the focus of the film are Bruno, Michele and Tonino, all of them, despite playing in the priest's football team and sort of adhering to their parents' restrictive upbringing style, indulge in the subversive behaviours that young adolescents would do. They smoke, they're knowing of sex, they're aware of where local hookers have sex with the villagers, they openly mock Giuseppe for his voyeuristic tendencies, and in Michele's case, they almost come close to engaging in sexual activity with an adult, in this case, Patricia. On a side note, it certainly doesn't help her character that she has this very uncomfortable ease of being butt naked around a young child, and even more disturbingly, seemingly has no issue with playfully seducing him. This undercurrent of pedophilia dampens the effectiveness of Patricia as a protagonist, especially as she's structured as one later in the proceedings. The theme is clearly introduced, though, however, to imbue the children's everyday situation with that tinge of danger, because, despite what some people may think, a woman seducing an underage boy is still a paedophile. Anyhow, back to the topic at hand. The children are far from the apple-cheeked innocent saplings that their parents would expect. This clashing aspect of them is almost reflected in the first scene that we see them, when they're playing on a modern expressway on the outskirts of the village, the only link to modernity that the village has. Their ultimate fate, however, is nothing short of evil, drowned and killed in various ways by a priest, no less, whose religious fervour has corrupted him to the point where he believes he's saving the boys from their guaranteed sinful adult lives and sending them straight to heaven. This threat from religion is present in the macabre darkness of the church where the boys are praying, really thick with clashing natural light and shadows, the boys peeking out from behind their hands. Even the Virgin Mary is absent, seemingly replaced by a skeletal figure rather like the Grim Reaper. The fact that the theme of pedophilia is present too is pretty much a heavily ironic sentiment considering the countless controversies of Catholic priests engaging in child sexual abuse being unearthed in the future. The boys are always found in water, sometimes with blunt force trauma on their heads, as if Don Alberto wanted them to feel no pain when they drowned. I mean, the whole ritual reeks of a religious rite, almost though it's kind of an anti-baptism, one that sends you directly to heaven through death, rather than guaranteeing safe passage when death will finally arrive. Child murder as well is still a controversial image, even in film today, so the fact that Fulci's film features this over and over clearly defies the usual accepted conventions of horror films right from the get-go. 
It certainly would have been hard to swallow in the 70s, and combined with the clear anti-Catholic sentiment and the scathing criticism of faith in general, the film was almost guaranteed to stir up a reaction in its audience. In today's more secular world, it has lost a little bit of that power. But the fact that this film featured such themes in the 70s, when the whole controversy of sexual abuse by the Catholic Church wouldn't be exposed until the 80s, does lend it quite a chilling aspect. The portrayal of the village as devoutly Catholic too gives the film a rather bleak and nihilistic tone, especially when they're so predisposed to a clocracy. Sticking together through their shared faith and ignorance of the outsiders, it makes sense that they would be joined together whenever they need to attack an aggressor. When Giuseppe is arrested on suspicion of the deaths, a huge mob assembles outside, violently trying to attack him for what he's done. While it is understandable considering the circumstances, the inherent wrongness of this type of activity is highlighted in probably the most brutal scene in the film. After similarly being arrested for the murders, Majara confesses to performing black magic in order to kill the boys for their behaviour. Clearly not performing the deed herself, she's released, but now of course word has spread. The villagers care little about the truth of what's occurred in the police station, they've made their own conclusions and they're going to react accordingly. So Majara is then attacked by three men in a cemetery, one of which includes the father of one of the dead boys. They brutally beat her with bludgeons and chains, horribly ripping the skin from her body and face, and then leaving her for dead, all while a jolly jaunty track plays loudly from one of their cars. Majara then crawls in a fatal state towards a main road, but no one helps her, no one cares, and she dies from her wounds. This is the truly shameful thing about the people in this film. They're so blinded by their conviction and faith that they fail to see the issue of a murderous priest in their midst. Even though for me, that would be the first place I'd look considering all the victims are in the priest's football club. That automatic assumption of the priest's innocence allows the situation to get worse, and rather than even consider the real cause of the problem, it's much easier for the villagers to just rally together against a common enemy that they attribute the crime to. So ultimately, their actions cause the death of an innocent person, and more of their own children to die. Even in the film's climax, there's little catharsis to be had. Though it's never really shown, the overwhelming feeling I got is that despite the priest's death, nothing would have changed. The villagers are still too stubborn in their belief system to let such a thing happen again. I even got the impression that they wouldn't even believe that the priest committed the crimes at all, especially considering the only ones who know, Patricia, Mardetti and Aurelia, are all ostracised by the community for various reasons, while little Malvina is just physically incapable of revealing the truth. It smacks of a things-will-never-change sort of scenario, and while that does fit in with Fulci's style, it does remain with you for quite a while longer than usual in this example. The pacing of the film is really well executed and there's very little lull in something interesting happening on screen. Granted, a lot of the screen time is devoted to the various characters to set them up as red herrings, but it is interesting to see how much of the supernatural and fantastic elements have been included in this way. With the introduction of Francesco and Majara and their world of wax dolls, skeletons and rituals, it does throw a lot of the limelight onto a supernatural, demonic conclusion to the whole thing. It's rather cold and harsh then to reveal that actually all these themes were just smoke and mirrors, leading you astray from the hard truth that actually it's a religious nut. This element of coldness is also evident in the murders themselves, which in regards to the children are bloodless, calculated and callous, a rather clinical and to the point method of dispatch by the murderer, who only really wants to send the children to heaven as quickly as possible before they sin. 
The most violent deaths are reserved for adults, namely Majara, who's brutally bludgeoned to death, as mentioned before, but also the climax in which Don Alberto is pulverised as he falls down a cliff face. This last scene actually hasn't aged that well, though, at all. It's quite clearly a dummy with parts of the face coming off. I mean, it's admirable, and it's quite ambitious as a special effect, but it just doesn't quite work here. The film was one of Lucio Fulci's personal favourites amongst his filmography, and you can see why. It's quite clearly a personal work, as Fulci was himself very sceptical of the Catholic Church. But it also happens to be one of Fulci's most influential. The themes of bleakness and isolation from religion are condensed and explored much further in his haunted house opus, The Beyond, where Fulci's tastes have almost become atheistic, yet still supernatural, with his depiction of the beyond as a desolate wasteland, not unlike the idea of purgatory. The violent sequence of Majara being beaten up is also the first snippet of what would become his iconic approach to gore and special effects, and the images of change striking hard against raw skin will be repeated in the beyond with the artist Schweik's death in the beginning. The idea of a corrupt priest cropped up again in his zombie film City of the Living Dead, and the concept of not-so-innocent children is flirted with in his other film House by the Cemetery. The film's title, Non si sevizia on paperino, refers to Malvira's tearing the head off a Donald Duck toy, as the character of Donald Duck is known as Paperino in Italy. Even this character is referenced in his latest slasher film that we covered last week, The New York Ripper, where the killer embodied the persona of a cartoon duck in order to commit brutal slayings. Don't Torture a Duckling is often viewed after Fulci's more famous horror works, despite coming out before most of them, which does make it difficult not to spot these recurring images upon viewing it. The film's influence has even spread to other films, with killer priests being featured in stuff like Happy Hell Night, Prom Night 4 and the Poltergeist films, whilst the beating of Majara whilst inappropriately jolly music plays, which is already an Italian staple, it still has very close parallels with the ear-slicing sequence from Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Majara was played by Florinda Balkan, the Brazilian actress who we've seen before on both Flavia the Heretic, The Damned, and also Last House on the Beach. The sultry Patricia was played by German actress Barbara Boucher, who played the role of Miss Moneypenny in the original Casino Royale. Interestingly, she also appeared in an episode of Star Trek in 1968, entitled By Any Other Name, which is actually a line that she mentions in this film. She'd appear in a whole host of Jallo pictures too, before working on Duckling, namely The Black Belly of the Tarantula, A Muck, and The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. With the exception of a role in Gangs of New York, she then chose to maintain a career in Italian TV and movie shorts. Mardetti was played by the roguish Thomas Milan, who we've encountered before when we covered Poliziotesky films, Almost Human, and The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist. Irene Pappas, who played the dour Mother Aurelia, had been in quite a few famous outings herself, such as The Guns of Navarone, Antigone, and even the 2001 film Captain Corelli's Mandolin. The priest, Don Alberto, was played by Swiss actor Mark Perel, who'd reappear in some sporadic Italian films after Don't Torture a Duckling, like Fulci's The Psychic, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, and The Sister of Ursula. But unfortunately, the actor was also addicted to heroin, and his career and life were cut very short when he died at the young age of 34 whilst in Morocco. Giuseppe was played by character actor Vito Passeri, who'd reappear in Fulci's The Psychic and The Black Cat, as well as Cemetery Man by Michele Soavi. 
Captain Modesti was played by Ugo D'Alessio, who again would reappear in The Psychic, as would Fausta Avelli, the little girl who played Malvina, though she'd also appear in Rings of Fear and the Dario Argento film Phenomena. Everyone pretty much knows who Lucio Fulci is now, so we'll skip the maestro himself. We'll also skip the writer Gianfranco Clarisi, whom we've mentioned last week as the writer of New York Ripper. However, the third writer on the production, Roberto Gianvitti, worked on quite a number of Fulci's productions, like Lizard in a Woman's Skin, White Fang, and its sequel, Return of White Fang, and The Psychic. But he also dabbled in other directors' work too, like Seven Bloodstained Orchids, or Five Women for the Killer. Renato Giboni was the producer on Duckling. He performed the same function on Fulci's Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Previously before that, though, he was mainly a production manager, though he did combine those two, two roles on Lizard. Composer Ritz Ortolani also needs no introduction. We've covered him when we went through Mondo Carne back on our Mondo episode, but he, of course, infamously did the soundtrack for four video nasties. Cannibal Holocaust, Madhouse, House on the Edge of the Park, and Brutes and Savages. In fact, some of the music he composed for this film actually ended up in Deodato's Cannibal Holocaust many years later. Cinematographer Sergio Dofisi has also been mentioned before when we watched Deported Women of the SS Special Section. Editor Ornella Michelli would join Fulci again on his two White Fang films and The Psychic before moving on to Joe D'Amato, where she edited his films Beyond the Darkness, Anthropophagus, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead and Porno Holocaust. Special effects guys, Franco Di Girolamo has been encountered before too on Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 and 3, whilst his fellow technician, Nilo Giacoponi, worked on Island of Mutations, Madhouse, Beyond the Door, and Once Upon a Time in America. Assistant director Francesco Signeri also worked on Don't Look Now and White Fang as an assistant to the director, but he also worked as a casting agent on stuff like Last Temptation of Christ and Ghoulies 2. The film debuted in Italy in 1972, but it failed to gain much attention because of the film's rather controversial storyline and themes, which harshly questioned the Catholic Church. This effect was rather cumulative, and the movie was tarred as a black sheep, receiving a very limited theatrical run through Europe. In France, it was released as The Long Night of Exorcism, but it still failed to gain any traction. Despite an English dub being recorded straight away, the film was never released in theatres in either the UK or the United States, effectively meaning no one saw this film for a very long time. By the time the US got it, it was 1999, while we in the UK only got to see this film for the first time in 2011, where it was released by Shameless Films. Had it been released by during the Video Nasties Panic, I'm pretty sure it would have attracted attention. For one, it used the prefix don't, which the DPP seemed to have an issue with, putting five films on the list simply just for having don't in the title. The themes of children being murdered, the beating of Majara, and the questioning of the religion would also have no doubt have been an issue. Top this off with the fact that Fulci was a repeat offender with three films on the list already, it would have been a no-brainer. As it stands, the film is now available for us to enjoy, and most recently, Arrow Video have done another restoration for Blu-ray too, so it's the best possible time to go out and get this very bleak, very effective Jallo picture. So, that was Don't Torture a Duckling. We'll say goodbye to Fulci then for now, and say hello again to Sergio Martino with the next film this week, Torso.
At a summer school in a small Italian village, Jane attends an art class led by her professor called Franz and questions him about a painting he's just covered in class. On the way home, a boy called Stefano asks Jane's friend Danny if he can give her a lift home, but she rejects him to go home with Jane. She then later explains that Stefano has been pursuing her for a long time. The pair pass by another of their friends called Flo, who meets with her boyfriend John to play hooky. Later that night, under a bridge, Flo and John are having sex in their car when he suddenly notices that they're being spied on by a man in a balaclava. As John runs out to search for him, Flo cannot wait any longer and ventures out herself. Soon returning to the car, she's then grabbed by the killer who strangles her with a scarf before mutilating her breasts with a knife. In the morning, both hers and John's bodies are discovered, with Danny and Jane informing their friends, Carol, Ursula and Katya, of her demise. Jane runs into Franz again and they seem to get closer, while Carol's day begins to get worse when her lover Nino says that he can't see her anymore. After bumping into Danny, Carol hitches away with two boys and they travel to an abandoned factory where a large number of kids are dancing, having sex or smoking marijuana. After smoking a large joint and being groped by the two men, Carol rejects them and leaves alone, taking a route through the marshland. Intoxicated and unable to walk very fast, she nonetheless spots a figure staring at her from far away in the thick fog. Trying to escape, she slips in the mud and is then grabbed by the killer, who strangles her and drowns her in a muddy puddle, before gouging her eyes out and mutilating her with a knife. The police arrive at the school to inform them of the signature scarf being used to kill the victims, and implores anyone with any information to come forward. Danny swears that she recognises the scarf, but cannot recall where from. Later that night, she receives a threatening phone call from an unknown person who warns her not to think about that scarf again or she'll end up dead. Her uncle Nino soon turns up and offers her the chance to use his villa just outside of town in order to recover from her fright and to invite her friends too as he's going away on business. After he's questioned by the police, a scarf seller on the square makes a phone call to the killer, blackmailing him to keep quiet about the distinctive scarf that he sold to him. As she returns to her apartment, Danny's confronted by Stefano, who tries to force himself on her, just as she realises that it was in fact Stefano who was wearing the scarf before. After receiving his money, the scarf seller is suddenly pursued by the killer in a car, who runs him into the wall repeatedly and kills him. Jane decides to confront Stefano on behalf of Danny, but only finds a note from him. Ursula, Katya and Danny catch a train to the villa with all of their luggage when a mysterious man called Roberto enters their carriage. By nightfall, Jane still hasn't arrived at the villa worrying the girls, but she finally arrives after some car trouble only for Danny to explain that Stefano's scarf was in fact inverted colours, meaning that she's seen the scarf on someone else. As couple Ursula and Katya make love to each other, it soon becomes apparent that there's an intruder spying on them. The intruder, though, suddenly gets spooked by the flash of a knife and is chased away from the property by the killer and has his throat slashed when he tries to take refuge in a shop. The next morning, Jane twists her ankle heading downstairs and Roberto arrives to treat her, revealing that he's a doctor. He prescribes her some pills and she takes them in the evening, going to sleep almost immediately. The other girls stay awake and drink champagne, only to hear a buzz at the door. Opening it, they're shocked to see Stefano's body strangled to death by the killer, who's just standing behind him. By morning, Jane awakens to a very quiet mansion and descends the stairs and discovers a scene of carnage, with all three girls, Ursula, Katya and Danny, brutally killed. 
Just as she discovers this, the killer re-enters the home, and whilst hiding, Jane witnesses the killer hack the girls' bodies into pieces with a hacksaw and remove them, locking the door on the way out. Discovering the phone is dead, she runs upstairs, injuring her foot further, and tries to signal for help by shining a mirror towards the town. It attracts the attention of Roberto, who attempts to call the villa to no avail. When the killer again returns, Jane hides her clothing and food litter, but then attracts attention by accidentally knocking a chair over. The killer enters her room and dismisses the noise as just the window being open, but then discovers Jane's shoes on the stairs when she dropped them earlier. Jane doesn't emerge from her bedroom until nightfall, when the killer seems to have gone. She uses the paper and screwdriver trick to prise the house key out of the front door, unbeknownst that the killer is actually just on the other side of the door. As she opens it, she's grabbed by the killer, revealed to be friends, who declared that he had to do it as they were just dolls. He has a flashback of his brother who once offered a girl to retrieve her doll if she allowed him to see her privates. She agrees, but then at the moment he grabs the doll, she screams and causes him to fall off a cliff to his death, all witnessed by friends. As a result, he's become misogynistic, branding all women as bitches who lie to get what they want, likening them to dolls that should just be cut up and thrown away. He explains that Carol and Flo seduced him in a threesome and then tried to blackmail him, leading to their deaths. Then when he realises that Danny had seen him in the scarf, he had to dispose of her and the others to prevent his secret from getting out. He attempts to kill Jane, only to be thwarted at the penultimate moment by Roberto, who's burst into the house. Chasing him to a barn, the pair fight ever nearing the edge of a cliff, where Franz is thrown off by Roberto, saving Jane. May I offer you a drink or something? Why not? But only on condition we don't discuss art aesthetics or the university. You know you have the nicest eyes when you haven't got your glasses on. No, don't. Please don't make fun of me. I wouldn't dream of it. You really surprised me the other day. I did? How? I would never have imagined that a product of, uh, of American technology could be so, so moved by the works of the old master. It's really quite refreshing. <laughs> I don't know whether or not to take that as a compliment, but I will. That proves that some Americans know how to be less American than other Americans. <laughs> you didn't come to Italy to buy the Colosseum. No, only to study. Well, I studied painting. Then I taught for two years in the South. Then I decided to specialize and applied for a scholarship in Italy. Do you like music, too? Of course I do. I thought you might. If I should get a couple of invitation tickets to an academy concert, you wouldn't mind coming along? I'd love to. In fact, I'll count on it. Thank you. There's no need to thank me. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye, Frank. Goodbye, Jane. Torso is a rather typical, though lurid and stylish, jello picture. Arguably, the fact that it's both lurid and stylish would technically mean that it's very typical for the genre, but I found Torso to have much more emphasis on this sleazy aspect, whilst still bolstering it with a degree of style. With Torso, we have your usual cast of nubile female teenagers attending college in a small Italian town. True to the genre, they soon come under threat by a black-gloved, masked maniac who strangles them before mutilating their bodies. It's not particularly standout in terms of its narrative and story, but neither is it paltry or lacking, really. 
I should probably start by saying that this film actually wouldn't have been that bad of a companion piece to the New York Ripper last week, as this film too has a very lucid point of view towards its female participants. Almost everything in the film is from the misogynistic viewpoint of the killer. Girls are leeringly gazed over by the camera, a threesome encounter at the beginning is quite voyeuristically shot, only to then have actually a peeper thrust into proceedings who's taking pictures. The girls are all rather too eager to disrobe any chance they can get, often in quite sleazy circumstances, while the incidental male characters all seem to spout about either how hot the girls are or challenging each other to get it on with them, oftentimes just being reduced to slack-jawed idiots who merely ogle at them from afar. The scarf seller is particularly leery, being called out on it by Carol, who notices him staring up her skirt as as he crouches down. Even the more focused on male characters, like Stefano, is actually a raging misogynist who'd rather beat women into submitting to him personally and sexually, rather than gaining their affections through the traditional courting method. Where it differs from New York Ripper, however, though, is the distinct focus on the female characters as protagonists. In Fulci's film, the women feel quite throwaway and incidental, seemingly tossed about in front of the camera to just provide us with our heavy flooding of gore or to be abused by the other male characters. In Martino's film, the opposite is true. While the camera does leer at them and focus on their sexuality just as much as Fulci, they're certainly not incidental. They all have names, they're distinctive, they're self-sufficient, and they seem like decent people. Whereas the males, bar a few exceptions, are the throwaway characters here, only there to provide us with this menacing, loutish underbelly. Final Girl Jane is our main focal point of the film. She's intelligent, protective, and not really afraid to use her wits when she needs to. Similarly, Danny is quite a well-drawn-out character too, and their friendship is quite an important image in the film. After all, Danny holds quite a large piece of the mystery killer's identity, and the pair of them together decide to use the villa as a way to hide out from the goings-on, which sets up the final 20 minutes of the movie. Other characters, like Flo and Carol, are less developed and they're more in line with the traditional female victim of the later slasher movie. This may of course be on purpose though, as it is these two girls who are participating in the opening sex scene, which has more significance later in the plot. Perhaps they're just being merely portrayed as more sexualized and less of being people because of the killer's ire at having been blackmailed by them. Even Ursula and Katya are much less developed, rather obviously though because they're in a lesbian relationship, and for the purposes of this film, that doesn't really require any further explanation. The girls still on the whole, though, have most of the screen time dedicated to them, and I can't really say that the film is as mean-spirited with its misogyny as Fulci was in The New York Ripper. With Stefano being a major red herring and an insufferable dick, we're only left with Roberto and Franz as our other male characters, and Roberto is pretty much a deus ex machina, a red herring, and Chekhov's gun rolled into one, merely introduced to later rescue Jane from the villa after she signals for help, and also merely to soothe her twisted ankle. His personality is not really majorly explored other than his penetrating stare. Well, and his ability to fight off the killer and sending plummeting off a cliff. So, we're only left with Franz, the only really developed male character, and of course, he turns out to be the elusive killer. The killer, again, gives me massive flashbacks of the New York Ripper. Not so much for his methods of killing, which we will get onto, but the motivation for his crimes. For a giallo picture, it's a very poor motive for doing what he does, especially with the viciousness and the vociferous way which he pursues the girls. Yet again, it's a childhood trauma that causes the damage, as it always seems to be in these jally films. 
Franz's older brother apparently steals the doll of a little girl and places it at the edge of a cliff, only offering to retrieve it if the girl shows him her genitals. Rather a disturbing trade deal, considering Franz's brother looks only around eight years old. She reluctantly agrees, though, and then screams just as the boy is about to grab the doll. Now, I'm not sure why she does it. Perhaps she gets frightened that he's so close to the edge, or she screams for help knowing that actually now she has to expose herself to a boy. But regardless, the youth loses his balance and tumbles to his death from the cliff. Franz then grows up with a bitter hatred of women, but it fuses somehow with the doll image, and he likens women to lying dolls who will spout falsehoods and cheat men out of everything. This seems to be awakened by the fact that his illicit tryst with Flo and Carol is part of the blackmail scheme, but for it to then extend to a whole host of people like the scarf seller, a random peeping Tom, Danny and her friends, it just seems to me that he he was just waiting for an excuse to go on the rampage. It clearly shows disdain for the artist's painting in the opening scene, whom he decides is too restrained because they don't show blood. He sort of legitimately has a reason to kill Danny, as she did spot him wearing the scarf, but why Ursula or Katya? And for that matter, why Jane? He specifically states that Jane is different and is unlike the lying bitches that the others were, clearly shown in their mutual interests in both art, culture and each other. But then after he explains his grand plan, he then attacks her and says that she's just like all the others. I mean, he literally contradicts himself in just a few minutes. When his own reasoning is contradictory, you tend not to trust his vision of how he sees things, so I just reckon that he was just a woman-hater, simple as. I get the impression that not too much thought was put to the killer's motivation, especially since it appears that none of the actresses were told who the killer was during filming. After hearing similar stories on the production of Happy Birthday to Me, the Canadian slasher film, I'm inclined to believe that similarly this meant that actually the writers had just not yet decided who was going to be the killer. It's also interesting to note that there is apparently an ending in which the killer survives, which was dropped in the final cut. But I'm glad they did that, to be honest. The killer's motivation was poor enough, so having him survive would have just irritated people. As masked slashers go, Franz's method of killing is rather unique, utilising a specific neckerchief-style scarf with a deep floral pattern to strangle them. Despite the muted tones of the film, this flash of red during each killing is a rather nice touch, replacing the blood that you'd expect to see. After his victim expires, he then mutilates the bodies in various ways, heartening to the film's original title, The Bodies Bear Traces of Carnal Violence. It's rather strange why he associates the doll image with his victims so closely, almost like he can't truly feel gratified until they're lying still and cold like a doll, whereupon then he proceeds to maim their corpses. I mean, breasts get stabbed and cut, eyes are poked out, and during the climactic sequence in the villa, bodies are hacked up into pieces with a rudimentary handsaw. His male victims lack this strangling technique, and they get squashed by a car or have their throat slit. The violent sequences are actually relatively strong, despite the way the bloodshed is filmed. It's not so glorifying of the plasma spillage as you'd expect, and it uses short cutaways between these moments to give you bite-sized snippets of the violence. While this is stylistic and rather effective, it also gives the impression that the film is more violent than what it actually shows. The three girls being hacked up with the saw is one example where not showing all of the carnage has made it much more tense, almost mirroring the point of view that Jane would have as she's hiding and only peeking out periodically. And apart from these stylish death sequences, some of the film's set pieces are also very visually impressive. 
the final 20 minutes of the film where Jane awakens to find her friends dead and that the killer is in the house disposing of their bodies is a really genius scene. It's certainly not usual to have such a sequence in a film like this, so it made the film very memorable for this alone. Although it is rather silly that Jane seems to be locked in her house all day and is only caught much later in the evening. The other standout scene is Carol's demise. Apart from the quite sleazy hippie den scene where she's groped whilst high, her journey into the forest pulls the rug out from under your feet rather quickly. I mean, suddenly there's no jovial music, there's no one else around, and no signs of urban society. There's just trees, swampland, mud, and thick fog. Never has an atmosphere changed so dramatically and been so effective than in this scene, and the moment where she spots the killer's silhouette in the distance is a real iconic image. I'm sure anyone would shit their pants if they were in a similar situation. Regardless of the film's faults, which don't really impact on the enjoyment of the film at all, it has to be said that the film does go on to influence a lot of other things. In the same vein as Bay of Blood, Torso is one of those giallo films that has the slasher template almost down to a T. Several years before proto-slashers like Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre were establishing those tropes more concretely. The Spanish slasher Pieces, which would come ten years later, also feels heavily inspired by Martino's film, albeit changing the sleaze to more of an emphasis on gory splatter. Even director Eli Roth has cited Torso personally as an influence on his work, such as the element of young women being in a European country who are also being watched by a killer. His work on Hostel 2 is purported to be a homage to films like Torso, which would explain the presence of both Edwige Fenech, a recurring giallo actress for Martino, and even the presence of Luke Miranda, who played M- Roberto in this film. Even Torso itself has a slight influence from our other film this week, Don't Torture a Duckling, with its much more isolated setting and its choice of muted colours. Jane was played by British actress Susie Kendall, whom we've encountered as the deuterogonist of Dario Argento's Bird with a Crystal Plumage. She'd later crop up, though, in Umberto Lenzi's giallo picture Spasmo, and also Story of a Cloistered Nun. We've also encountered American actress Tina Ormont before, on Salon Kitty, whilst in Martino's film she plays the best friend, Danny. French actor Luke Miranda played the mysterious Dr. Roberto. He'd pop up in a few surprising places like The Nun and the Devil, Violent Professionals, and as mentioned before, Hostel Part 2. John Richardson, who played the maniacal killer Franz, was also a British actor who made his debut in 1958's A Night to Remember. He was also in Mario Barber's Black Sunday, Umberto Lenzi's Eyeball, and even Michele Soavi's The Church. The rectal smear, though, that is Stefano, was played by Roberto Bassacco, who was actually in Hands of Steel, strangely, which I can't say I noticed. Carla Brait, who played Ursula, I recognised her from Martino's other giallo flick, The Case of the Bloody Iris, but she also popped up in Enzo Castellari's Bronx Warriors. Conchita Eroldi, who played Carol, played another character called Carol in Martino's other giallo, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, but she later went on to have a successful career as a film producer on stuff like Michele Sorvi's Cemetery Man and 1999's Titus with Anthony Hopkins. Patricia Adiatori played the short-lived Flo. She previously starred in Naked Girl Killed in the Park, whilst Luciano Bartoli, who played one of the young men on the motorcycles, had been in The Fifth Chord, Violent Professionals and Caligula, The Untold Story. Like Fulci, we don't really need an introduction to Sergio Martino as we've covered a few of his films already, like Hands of Steel and Island of Mutations. 
Similarly, we've encountered the writer Ernesto Gastaldi before, on Almost Human and The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, so we'll skip him too. We'll start, therefore, with producer Carlo Ponti, who had worked vastly in that area since the 40s in the Italian film business. Some of his other works include 1965's The Tenth Victim, uh, Dr. Shivago, Antonioni's Zabriskie Point, Violent Professionals, the video Nasty Flesh for Frankenstein, its sister film Blood for Dracula, and The Passenger. The famous Oliver Onions, or Guido and Maurizio De Angelis, did the music for Torso, and we've been lucky to hear their talents before on stuff like Alien Terror. Cinematography was done by someone else we've seen before too, like Giancarlo Ferrando, returning from his work on All the Colours of the Dark. He'd go on to Violent Professionals, The Video Nasty, Prisoner of the Cannibal God, Island of Mutations, which we've covered, The Great Alligator, and of course, the best worst movie ever, Troll 2. Yet again, another familiar face is that of the editor, Eugenio Alabicio, who worked on Island of Mutations and The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist. He also worked, though, on a few of the nasties, like Prisoner of the Cannibal God, Eaten Alive, and Hell Prison. The makeup effects were done by Mario Van Riel from Case of the Scorpion's Tail, whilst the assistant director was someone we've encountered before too, Michele Massimo Tarantini, who we've encountered before directing the bloody brilliant Massacre in Dinosaur Valley. The film was released theatrically in Italy in 1973, where it received relatively good returns and acclaim due to the popular Jello trend in the wake of Dario Argento's stuff. Notably, however, it wasn't as well received as Martino's other works, like Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward or All the Colours of the Dark. It did take a few years to arrive in the UK, having its cinematic exhibition in 1975, with a few cuts applied to it as well, but there's no further details on what they actually cut out. It did, however, not get one, not two, but three VHS releases in the pre-Sir era in 1982, just as the whole Save Our Children nonsense was erupting. One of the releases was from Condor, and it appears to be missing several minutes, even when compared to the cinema version, so it appears that that one was cut by the distributor. The other two releases were actually the same release, just with different artworks, from Ivor Film Services, who actually had loads of titles on the nasties list, like Night of the Demon, Night of the Bloody Apes, Graduation Day, Christmas Evil, etc, etc. Torso therefore ticked quite a lot of the boxes in video nastydom. It was distributed by a repeat offender... The video cover showed a tool, in this case a hacksaw, menacing a woman. The film combined sex and violence together quite frequently, and it was an uncut version too, in contradiction to the BBFC's sanctioned version that was in the cinemas. So for all intents and purposes, this should have been a nasty compared to the usual standards, which just shows just how silly the whole thing was. The film was subsequently declared illegal once pre-cert tapes had to be classified, so the next time the UK saw it, it was in 1993, where it passed with 50 seconds of cuts. Again, there doesn't seem to be any details on what was cut, however, so one has to assume it was to the more graphic hack soarings, or maybe the gropings of Carol, but who really knows? All these cuts were waived, though, in 2007 when Shameless Films brought it out on DVD. And a few years later, they did a re-release on Blu-ray. So, it's there for any Jello enthusiasts, and I'd certainly recommend it.
So that's it for this week. I do hope you've enjoyed my Jello talk. And as ever, get in touch over Twitter or Facebook if you've got any opinions on these films this week. I'd love to hear everyone's take on it. But if you do have quite an extensive viewpoint on it, just email it over to me and I'll feature your feedback on the show. I'm always looking for that forum on these films just so that I feel that I'm not the only one who likes these films. Next week, we're venturing into a well-trodden path on the Nasty Pasty podcast, but it will be the last time that we'll do so. We've got our final two cannibal movies next week, and they are slightly different again to what we're used to. They're cannibal love stories. They are 1985's Amazonia, which is sometimes known as White Slave, the Catherine Miles story, or Cannibal Holocaust 2. And then 1980's Black Orgasm, which is sometimes known as Voodoo Baby or Sex and Black Magic. Until then, look after yourselves and I'll speak to you all next week. Adios, everyone. (laughs) 